Good evening, you're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I am Len, I am your host for this week, joined by our friends, freelance writer Rowan Kaiser. How many moves ahead? It sounded like you said something between three and twenty. <laughs> it's it's some number, it's in that range. We're, we're, like we're ahead, okay? Standard deviations, you know, there's, yeah, it's, it's somewhere in there. Right, hello. Uh, we also have uh, three MAs behind the scenes mastermind, Mike Gillis. Hey there. And our special guest for this week, uh, visiting lecturer in the Department of History at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Dr. Brett Devereaux. Hi. Great to be and here. We're glad to have you. Uh, today's episode is going to be about the concept of the state in strategy games. Um, and we specifically sort of got this idea from a post on your blog, uh, a collection of unmitigated pedantry, which I will include a link to in the show notes um, about um, you did. You did one on EU4 and now there's also one on Victoria 2, which I'm not quite caught up with yet uh, that we all thought was super interesting. But before we get started, can you talk a little bit about your background, uh, both as an academic and as uh, a, a player of strategy games? Okay, well, the academic one is is a little bit easier. I have my PhD in ancient history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. My area of specialty is actually the Roman world, but I teach fairly broadly. I have military history as my secondary field, and that obviously comes in a fair bit when analyzing uh, video games. I have been playing computer strategy games since the late 90s. Although my entry into it was a little bit weird because as a kid, my family, we had a Mac. So uh, my options were sometimes somewhat limited. But I, I have been playing strategy games ever since. I mean, we're talking a lot about Paradox games today. I got into the Paradox oeuvre with EU3 and have played every game since then. Gotcha. So I think in sort of layman's terms, if you say state, nation, country, maybe even government. A lot of people might use those sort of interchangeably. So before we start talking about how states work in strategy games, from your perspective as an academic, what exactly is a state that sets it apart from a nation or a country or a government? Right. This is a this is a good question and an important bit of kind of clarification because these terms do mean different things. Uh, country is, of course, a very broad term. It, it indicates a space, and it presumably includes whatever polity, which is our term for any kind of political organization, whether it's a state or not, in that place. Um, when we say state, the usual formal definition of a state is that a state is a political entity with a monopoly on the legitimate use of force. So a state is you have a state when you have a political entity in a place, and they are the only ones that get to do violence. Um, and the state emerges as a human institution um, in you know circa 3000 BC in Mesopotamian Egypt, and then subsequently later in other places. Not all human organizations are states. A tribe is not a state. Um, a club is not a state. A company is not a state. We're really used to states because most of the world now is covered by states, but many humans throughout history lived in things that were not states and various other kinds of polities. Um, 
what we talk about as a nation state is a situation where the nation and a state are coextensive. That is, they occupy the same place and can be equated with each other, which then just raises the question, what is a nation? And a nation is, generally speaking, a, a group of people with a defined territory, with a common language and cultural elements, and a myth of common origin. So it is a people that imagine themselves as a single people um, with a single common origin. So a good example of a nation state is a country like France. Um, you know, the French people are people that live in France. They speak French. They have an identifiable French culture. They imagine themselves to have a common history, and they all share a state. Um, that makes it a nation state. Uh, whereas, by contrast, something like, say, to reach into the past, the Roman Empire is not a nation state. It is a state. The Romans keep a monopoly on the use of force in their territory, but many different peoples live in the Roman Empire, all sorts of peoples. There are Romans, and there are other Italians, and there are Greeks, and then there are you know, Gauls and Spaniards and so on, all in the Roman Empire. And so it's a state, but not a nation. So what are some of the things I know in your your blog and we'll, we'll probably go back to EU4 and in Victoria too a fair bit because those are the the main topics you've you've written about uh, but feel free to bring up other games that also are are object examples of this but you brought up uh, for example the Comanche in your first blog as something that is represented as a state in EU4 that really wasn't historically and what is it exactly about, like, you know, these North American people groups that would make it so, you know, they would not normally fall under the definition of a state? Right. And to be clear, when we talk about this, this isn't a value judgment. We're not saying one group is more advanced than mm -hmm. the other, anything like that. This is simply a typological classification. So most of your um, Plains Native American peoples, both before and post-contact, uh, their organization is, um, we would say, tribal. There are many centers of power in their community, different chiefs that have different levels of authority, authority in different areas, despite you might have a situation where there is a recognition that this people is all one people and they normally cooperate, but they move in different groups. They have different leaders, different family units. In the case of many Plains Native Americans, a lot of uh, a lot of the actual power in the society dwells at the level of sort of extended family units rather than up at the level of of the leader. Um, it's a situation where the political leadership has not consolidated power in the way that has happened in a state. And so for the EU4 example, it's a little odd that if the player, if the player plays as, say, um, the Comanche, they're a single leader that is entirely in charge of all of the Comanche. That kind of leadership, that kind of ability to be in total control of a group of people is very typical of states, but in a tribal society, that kind of power would never all be in one person's hand, almost by definition. It would be distributed among many different power centers that might be competing, that might not get along, that might have differences with each other. And so it's a little odd what EU4 is doing is it's taking non-state peoples and kind of trying to mash them into a, a state-shaped box. And you can see that with the Comanche. You can see that with the way that 
um, certain non-state tribal groups on the Eurasian steppe. Uh, nomads are treated uh, in both this and other, other Paradox games. Um, and then I should also just add, that is not to say that there were no states in the Americas pre-contact. There absolutely were states in the Americas pre-contact, just not on the Great Plains. You know, th this distinction between like a state and like a non-state people group, is there has there ever been a strategy game that that explored this distinction that you felt like did it, you know, effectively as someone who has played a lot of strategy games and strategy like games? Um, there are some games that tackle non-state organization to one degree or another. Um, the Crusader King series, because it's so personally focused, you can see situations where inside of whatever kingdom you're in, right, a given leader has a tremendous following. And there's efforts in CK2 with some of the tribal mechanics, the ability to raise armies with prestige rather than territory control, for instance, to sort of simulate some of the ways that power might work differently in, in non-state groups. Um, I also actually, my brain jumps to, if you're familiar with the Mountain Blade series, mm -hmm. the way that power there is, you know, the notional king, in quotes, of a given faction is often not the most powerful person in that faction. His subordinates are often uh, have bigger armies and maybe they break away and join other factions and maybe they come back and Often the player is a freewheeling non-state military force. <laughs> um, this is actually pretty good. It's worth noting that almost any game that's going to do a decent job of simulating the Middle Ages in Europe is going to be dealing with lots of non-state polities because uh, your most medieval kingdoms are not states. The king of France in you know 1000 or even 1200 um, CE has very limited control over much of his notional territory. His dukes and counts are quasi-independent, or in some cases, actually independent. And he has to persuade them. He can't order them. And so he doesn't have that crucial monopoly on the legitimate use of force. Uh, as anyone who's played Crusader Kings, <laughs> as, as the French knows, right? You call up your levies and half of your dukes say no, uh, because they don't like you. Yeah, I, I remember like any time I would play as like a count or a duke in France in CK2, I would I, I like I'd be really irritated if I got elected as as the king under <laughs> elective succession because it's like, oh, man, like I was doing so well being the leader of this powerful ducal faction <laughs> was like running the kingdom without any of the obligations of kingship. And now I'm, uh, you know. Now I have to actually deal with with all of these petitioners who want stuff for me. Um, uh, yeah, I <clears throat> I was just going to say I I often wonder uh, inside Paradox because they they have uh, historians on staff at Paradox if I understand correctly, and I, I wonder what the internal uh, debates are. I would love to be on a fly on the wall and and. Uh, hear about how they're discussing the tension between how things actually work for example um in in crusader kings 3 um where they are trying to to bring out you know as much as they can about um how people actual individuals um interact and and interface to create how the the resulting actions of states um but obviously uh, there's so much, much, much more going on in reality and in history than they could ever possibly represent in a game. And you mentioned that 
um, in in a few of your um, a, a few of your blog posts about um, for the purposes of actually making a game somebody could play um, EU four and and the CK series make their own uh, choices as to sort of where to where to focus the actions in in EU four. It's so much about it's entirely about state agency and and um, you talk a bit about how. Um, both sort of the peoples, like you mentioned earlier, and persons as an individuals are kind of uh, completely obfuscated behind. You're just this bizarre sort of spirit of the state um, that goes through making games. And I think that's that's really interesting. I wonder if um, I hope, you know, in the future that people that studios more than just uh, Paradox uh take different angles at that i i feel like there's there's so much in um maybe maybe you could talk about um how this because you mentioned sort of theories of history and how you can read paradox games i completely agree as if they do have have a theory of history that's sort of the the premise of of um your series of of analyses of of eu4 and um there are interesting things from theories of history, right? And theories of state, theories of politics that can be applied onto game design and maybe mined to find, you know, the next interesting thing that could, that could um, be applied to a next generation of paradox games or somebody else coming out of the woodwork and, and making their own take on that. Yeah. I, this is, this is actually what drew me to talking about paradox games in particular, was that I think they do in fact have a theory of history, and you can see in different games in their in their series they focus on different things. That you know the Victoria series is much more about people uh, than um, Europa Universalis is, and thus the determination to simulate them. Crusader Kings is about relationships, um, you know, between rulers much more, and so they opt to simulate that, and and that's fascinating because. I frankly, the bar for having at least a basic theory of history in in video games in general, I mean, strategy games do somewhat better than most video games, but still not particularly well. In a lot of cases, what you get are a set of mechanics that were often developed for uh, an environment that was not historically minded, and then there is a sort of historical coat of paint applied over the top of it. Um, I, since it's just come out, um, it seems worth noting, this is the standard age of empires, um, mm -hmm. approach where, you know, age of empires borrowed a bunch of mechanics from Warcraft, Starcraft, command and conquer, um, total annihilation and the like. Um, and then it sort of painted them over with, um, with a historical setting and the degree to which that. It's just a coat of paint is so obvious. There was a, I don't remember what it's called now. There was back when the Star Wars prequels were coming out, there was literally a Star Wars version of Age of Empires 2. Yeah. And, and it worked uh, Empire fine. Empire at War. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. And yeah. it worked and it worked fine. Um, and it was just, it was the same mechanics, and it just it just worked fine because the historical context was really just a coat of paint. And my impression is that they're trying to make this fourth game a little more historically rooted, but from what I've read, I haven't had a chance to play it yet. From what I've read, most of that rootedness takes place in in sort of cutscenes and explainers. It's not integrated into the mechanics. What's fascinating about Paradox is that it's an effort to integrate it into the mechanics. 
that they really sort of they ask what is interesting about this time period and how can we express that mechanically in our simulation yeah so, I, I think so that sir go ahead Ron. so the answer to your question lynn is no except for king of dragon pass that's what um, i was trying to get you to bring up earlier <laughs> yeah. king of dragon pass so that's what I was fishing because, for. Because games are based on sets of rules. Like games are based on sets of rules. Programming is based on sets of rules. It's at a certain level impossible to have a game that doesn't have like a computer game that is intended for single players to not have some kind of yes or no system that are clearly delineated boundaries between like ownership and non-ownership, influence and non-influence. Um like, yes, games do attempt to model that, but at a certain level, there's always going to be a hard divide where at most there was a soft divide historically. Uh, King of Dragon Pass is the most um, ambitious uh, attempt to work through that. In King of Dragon Pass, for those who haven't played it, you you play a tribe that I believe is in the process of kind of settling down, and you're sort of the, the head chief, and... Basically get, my favorite narrative, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think it's it's a dream game in a lot of ways, except that I don't think it's a very good game uh, because it's really hard to see the boundaries between the yeses and the noes because it's trying to simulate this kind of soft power and soft influence. You have like a council of seven advisors, I think, who are also like the chiefs who have elected you and so on, who give you advice and like learning to play the game is not a process of like picking things to do and then seeing what happens according to a set of transparent rules or fairly transparent rules like EU4, for example. Uh, you know, you go to war, you're moving the armies around in ways that you could very directly see. They fight a battle, they win the battle, and you can a lot of the time figure out why you might have won the battle. Usually it's just having more troops. Um, in King of Dragon Pass, instead, what you have are a series of like coded pieces of advice that these advisors will give you and learning to read like what that actually means. Like you get a choice. This is the one that I remember the most from when I tried to play it. Uh, that's like there's a tribe of super weak, uh, like. I don't know, like pig people or something next to yours. It's a it's a weird fantasy world that involves like um, half animal races alongside humans. Um, and these people are extremely easy for you to uh, take over land from. And you will have the option to take that land and taking over land feels like a thing that in most games you do want to do. But at some point in the future, maybe inevitably, maybe when you take too much land, I don't know. At some point, like a bunch of minotaurs show up who can easily kick your ass and they're like, hey, you've you've offended our animal friends. And like when I was playing this, I was like, yes, I see the story here. I got too excited about, you know, dominating my weaker neighbors and I'm getting in trouble for that. But I have no idea what the trigger point for that is, which makes it feel like a significantly weaker game that frustrates and annoys me as a game player, even as I respect it as, uh, you know, a student of history. Yeah, the the perceivable consequence is always tricky. Of course, in actual history, perceivable consequence and decision making is often not there. People make mistakes without knowing it. But then we want our games to be a little more fun than that. 
I was actually thinking about the original question a little more, games that actually simulate non-state interactions well. And it's not, strictly speaking, a strategy game, but I'm going to reach back to some of my older experiences. EVE Online. Oh. EVE Online simulates it really well, um, specifically in uh, low-sec and null-sec non-sov space, which is a statement that I suppose will make sense to people who I have not played <laughs> EVE Online for more than a decade, but it will make sense to people who've played it. You in, in those areas, players have pretty much free reign to fight each other, but they can't permanently control territory. They can only occupy and exploit it. And so bands of players tend to move around. They tend to shove each other in ways that are actually quite reminiscent to, for instance, what um, Wayne Lee calls the cutting off way of war in the, in the East Coast of Native North America, where a lot of the warfare was based around applying pressure uh, against an opposing group, not to destroy them or to change sort of formal fixed boundaries, but merely to force them to move further away from you, which would enable you to more effectively exploit the resources in the lands between you than they could. And you see that play out in in low sec and non-solved null sec in EVE all the time where you have a neighbor you don't like, you just begin raiding them until they go away, until they decide it's not fun and move somewhere else. Um, and that's actually a very sort of typical uh, non-state on non-state warfare system. And of course, you also have decentralized power and decision-making in the context of an MMO because no MMO leader can actually force anyone to do anything because it's a game. So we've, we've found the solution, which is just that every single individual on the map uh, in EU4 or, or Victoria 3 just needs to be played by one real person. Um, Except then, that we, we did it. <laughs> oh, we, we have it, because like when we played EU4 together, uh -huh. uh, we, we had the super secret the 3MA Discord with the, the monthly or weekly multiplayer or whatever. Um, subscribe to our Patreon if you would like to be involved in regular EU4 sessions. <laughs> regular in quotes well regular uh, if we get more people to subscribe to the patreon that's what i'm going for yeah so like the first game that we played we had like four or five maybe six seven like tops but like we had four or five consistent players and these consistent players took on great powers we had some troy i think was spain i was russia uh, what were you, Lynn? You were England, right? The most recent one, I was Bavaria. No, not no, uh, not the most recent one. The first one we did. The very, very first one, I was England. Yeah, yeah. You, you were England because yeah. I think Note ended up sneaking your capital because you'd taken out all your forts. Yeah, um, it, well, because I had I thought I had blockaded his entire fleet at the Straits of the Baltic, and then he just built more ships in Normandy and sailed them yeah. right across. <laughs> So, <laughs> yeah, the, the English monarch not paying attention to the English channel was was yeah, a really good that time. Was, anyway, not great. Yeah. So we had and I think somebody was the Ottomans that might have been robbed, but like we all were taking the super big powers and for two and a half centuries in EU four, which is, you know, two thirds of the game, we did not fight each other. We created a system of alliances or non-aggression where, like, obviously we can beat up the AI, but 
we might actually have a problem if we have to fight each other. So we ended up creating this system where we ended up had five giant world spanning empires that had never gone to war with another <laughs> and then suddenly had to like had nothing else to do but have a giant war at the end that uh, I think Troy Spain was winning the most. Um, well, I'd, I'd like to pick up on on the fact that you said there was nothing left to do at the end, because I think it's really interesting that um, uh, uh, Brett earlier mentioned um, that, uh, you know, a state is is sort of deeply connected with violence and uh, who who is doing violence. And is it something that can sort of, you know, there's. Uh, something that can legitimately act in in violent ways sort of on the international stage. Um, and I think something that Eve does really well uh, that I I just wish that there was some way to mine out of it and and um, uh, apply to other things is um, is the fact that um, those those player organizations um, in in non-sovereign space and things like that, which is an interesting term in itself. Um, uh, they can experience sort of internal pressure. Like, um, if they, if they're organized to a certain extent and uh, the, the people running the show are, are thinking economically, and I didn't get that into Eve, but enough to, to sort of, um, appreciate what was going on in the really large organizations. Um, they can make economically motivated decisions like, oh, we're gonna, uh, the price of X is too high, and it sure would be nice if we could go over there and get some of the resource that pl plugs into the huge chain of reactions that eventually results in this expensive commodity that we really like. Um, and I think it's really interesting that um, the it seems to me one of the one of the big things I actually kind of dislike about uh, Paradox Grand Strategy games is that. There is very rarely any internal motivation. And uh, I mean, maybe this is just because of the sort of game that, you know, the conventions of the genre or, or whatever. Um, but it if you can, if you want to, you can just play EU and sit in your little um, county or, or whatever, uh, smallest level unit um, and... Uh, and just kind of sit there. You don't really have any need to go do anything else aside from maybe crossing your fingers about some large aggressor showing up, but their motivation is just to conquer you just to, just to conquer you more or less. Like um, you, there is the economic motivation to get bigger so that you can get bigger. Um, and maybe that works for uh, some ways of playing it. But um, I really think that lack of, of sort of internal intrinsic motivation to to do stuff is is kind of um a downside to the way EU yeah. kind of shapes the world for you. And there's a you know you've got like you've got multiple layers of this. I think the classic one in terms of like representing non-state forces uh that a lot of strategy games use is rebels, which are just like angry people that'll pop up and want to like burn stuff down and sometimes they want to go independent. EU4 has added on top of that now the the concept of estates, which has gone through a couple of revisions. Actually, the most recent dev diary about West Africa, they're talking about federations of tribal kings in like Hausaland, where like they're going to use estate privileges to model like how much autonomy the local kings have versus like the main king. 
there's all these ways they've tried to hack it together. I know, you know, Brett, you talked about uh, like centers of reformation in your blog post where it's like it pops up and starts spreading Protestantism. Um, they have that with revolutionary sentiment now in the late game where you'll get centers of the revolution that start spreading consciousness to the bourgeoisie or something like that. Um, I, out of all of these, what do you what do you all think are like the most effective and, and where do they fall short? So, so I think by far the most effective uh, system in EU4 is, and we actually just sort of touched on it, is the diplomatic simulation. And I think that is, a, that, that is the core of the game. Um, it is somewhat diminished, I think, from its historical equivalent in that there is a desire among the player base for quote-unquote tall play to be viable. I get that from a game perspective. Historically, tall play was not viable. It was never viable. It isn't viable now. You heard it here first. <laughs> um, you know, the generally speaking, quote unquote, tall, that is to say, very small, concentrated regimes get bowled over by very large, expansive regimes with much larger populations. That just always happens. Um, I'm sure that there are there are exceptions, but by and large, this is true, especially in the pre-industrial world where nearly all wealth is tied to agricultural land. And so the amount of agricultural land your state has is its resource base. There really isn't an option to play tall in that space. Um, and so, but if you set aside the tall game for a moment, um, you have a situation where um, EU4 simulates, and I discuss this in in the essays, um, the structures of of what we fancily call interstate anarchy, which is just to say states without rules, where in order to be safe, you have to be powerful. In order to be powerful, you need more land to get more wealth, more revenue in order to raise more military forces. To get that land, you have to take it from someone. So you victimize your weaker neighbors. Well, that means that your desire to be more secure, to be safer, is of course inflicted on all of your neighbors who have the same desire and we victimize their weaker neighbors. It creates a situation where war is normalized. Every state is seeking to render itself secure through a series of actions that render every other state less secure, what's called in, in fancy poli-sci parlance the security dilemma. Everything you do to make yourself more secure makes everyone else less secure. And EU4 presents a sort of a world on that logic, which is a very well-established theory of international relations, and then follows it to its conclusions. And its conclusions look very much like the early modern period that EU4 is set in. I think this was the right model for this period. And it is such a brilliant simulation of a poli-sci theory that is expressed very clearly in this era. Note that in every other era, they have to install brakes on this because those eras weren't quite as totalizing in their violence as the early modern period was. But I think that element of the simulation is, is probably one of the most successful elements of the simulation. Um, that said, I certainly think that that the point made that there isn't a sort of internal impetus to violence, there isn't an economic or social impetus, is a really good one. 
I find it really odd, for instance, turning to the Crusader Kings games, that there isn't some mechanic whereby if your kingdom stays at peace too long, your nobles get ornery with you. They ought to. Uh, for most of the cultures in Crusader Kings, warring is part of a king's job, and a king that doesn't do that was generally not well thought of. Um, there would be a cost in legitimacy and internal prestige for a king that wasn't seen as sufficiently active militarily, or obviously that was seen as a failure militarily. And so there was a social, a cultural pressure whereby rulers had to go out and do war and do war successfully merely to maintain their internal political position because after all the king's primary job was his war leader and so if you're not leading some wars what are you doing for me and why am i paying taxes yeah that's that's great that's that's exactly when i was saying earlier that you know i wonder if there are things that can come the other way from from theory into game design it it i i don't work on paradox games but that seems like something that you could sort of experiment with as a as a designer or maybe a modder um, uh, to to just start building in some sort of internal war pressure. I think it'd be very interesting to see how that would work out. Yeah, so, I think an important thing here is that um, EU4 is Paradox's flagship title, and it is modeling this particular era that fits the assumptions. So there's like there's like a back and forth where it's not just EU4 just happens to be a game that's about the the early modern period and therefore has figured out like the best ways to model that. It's that the early modern period if you are doing an attempt at a historical simulation is a thing that players think is like what strategy games should be and they want to play and they buy it and uh, you know, recommend it and spend money on expansions for the next six years and so on. Um, because painting the map is fun. Yeah, although <laughs> I I think if, if I can kind of expand on that, one of the things that I think is really interesting is to look then, looking at the games that chronologically come immediately after and immediately before EU4 and the efforts to take that because EU4, the, the EU system, not EU4 itself, but all of the EU games, right? They came first. Every other Paradox game you want to imagine, like the DNA of Europa Universalis, and then they like, how do we change this to fit a different era? And it's really striking. So in the Crusader Kings games, they take the Casas Belli for EU4 that are relatively unlimited, and they start putting lots of limits on them. That if you want those really powerful war goals that allow you to seize lots of territory, you better be attacking someone you have a claim against or who isn't your religion, um, expressing in a sort of, I would say, somewhat clumsy but still very interesting way, the ways in which violence was channeled through cultural norms rather than the pure Machiavellianism of the early modern period, that you were expected to be more restrained when fighting fellow Christians or fellow Muslims than you were when attacking across a religious boundary. On the flip side, if you go later and you look at Victoria 2, obviously that game's a little long in the tooth these days, um, the sequel is coming, huzzah. Um, violence is constrained in other ways. It's constrained through systems for balance of power politics. The great powers generally prey on little colonial nations until there aren't any left. They avoid fights with each other because they're so destructive. Um, and instead, you have the conference system 
which is designed to allow it allows the great powers to push against each other, but they're not. It's not the war of all against all, at least until the end game when all of the easy pickings are gone. I thought it was funny you're describing your your group game of EU4 as just sort of you didn't fight each other, you just all gobbled up every other little state and then only fought each other when there were none left. And it just it occurred to me, I'm like, you have successfully described the 19th and early 20th century where <laughs> right. the great powers of Europe aggrandize themselves by gobbling up everything that isn't a great power in Europe. And then when there are no more places to expand left, you get the Titanic world wars uh, where they proceed to take all of those vast resources and industrial power and use it to incinerate Europe. A thing that I think about often is I read a book about the scramble for Africa and that literally it described that the English wanted to have like a north-south channel of land they could paint on the map. And that was a driver for <laughs> some of their colonization efforts at the end of the 19th century was literally to paint the map red in, in a line that looked really pretty. Though to be fair, they were also hoping to stretch a railroad down that line. True, that, like there there are aspects of it, but yeah. like it was, I mean, I mean, no great, no great consolation for all of the people who found themselves in the way of that railroad, and therefore on the business end of a British bayonet. Yes, right. and and also like it was the idea that they could put the railroad in if they had painted the map so far. Um, it was less about what the actual land in those areas entailed. Uh, so yeah, it was just this uh, this very strange motivation that also that there was some economic aspect of it, but a lot of it was just they wanted to do the things that we do as EU four players because it was so abstract for them the the actual harm that they were doing to real humans, uh, in the in those areas, um, and that created a great power tension that almost exploded into war before World War One, and then you know, helped contribute to World War One somewhat. Well, yeah, and part of what you want to understand the British doing there, what all of the European powers are doing there, right, is that the scramble for Africa and also the um, contemporary, what was called the Great Game, um, which was a British and Russian competition in Central Asia, um, these are conflicts between the great powers that are playing out in other places. Britain and France and Germany are scrambling for Africa because we need to have it, they would say, so that the other guy doesn't. Because the worry is, of course, any resources, any geographic advantage you let the other power have renders you less secure. This gets really clear when it's essentially a duel, a one-on-one -on -one, um, struggle when you look at Central Asia. Um, I think a lot of people are at least vaguely aware that the British went into Afghanistan. Um, I think most people aren't really aware why. And the British went into Afghanistan because their concern, there was nothing of value in Afghanistan worth having, and the British never thought there was. The value was in making sure the Russians didn't have Afghanistan because the thinking was that if they did, that would imperil British India. And so there was a need for this forward position. And of course, the Afghans just found themselves on the, the business end of this jockeying for favorable geographic positions. 
Uh, this also, as a side note, explains why the British were so quick to withdraw from Afghanistan when things went pear-shaped, because their only mission was to keep the Russians out. They accomplished that mission, and then they left. Yeah, uh, this reminds me of a GDC talk uh, with the, the Paradox designer, Chris King. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, he gave a talk about like simulating history and strategy games. And when he talked about like why they, what they tried to do in order to make Victoria II's colonization make sense, because so much of 19th century colonization was built on this like idea of prestige. Um, he was like, okay, we've read Marx. Marx has like an actual economic argument for why colonization made sense. So we took that and we made a game out of it. Like that these these industrial colonial powers wanted to extract resources and use them to further their own economic development. So this is what made Victoria too have that, which is a kind of funny because it ends up like reinforcing a bunch of conservative design. And I think Chris Kay is a fairly famous conservative, at least within Paradox. Um, but they're they're just like, yeah, Marx will make for the best gameplay here. So we're gonna <laughs> we're going to apply that to what Vicky 2 does. Well and it's it's worth noting that that Vicky 2 also incentivizes that decision in two directions, which I find really interesting. In one direction you're incentivized to go out and get those resources because as the player, you can turn those resources into military power, which will either make you more secure or more able to dominate your enemies. And that perfectly fits with the era. Look, it was lost on no one in Europe at that time that in the last great spasm of violence, uh, the Napoleonic Wars, that in the end, for all of Napoleon's abilities, it was largely the British that came out on top, that walked away with the most. And in part, because they could be, while totally isolated from the continent, sustained by all of their overseas colonies and with untroubled domination of the sea. And you see that awareness, um, you know, in particular, famously, uh, put to pen by the American naval theorist uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan, that control of the sea and control of a colonial empire had given Britain the military edge that it enabled it to eventually, after a long and brutal process, prevail against uh, apparently stronger and more numerous France. Um, and so everyone's aware of that as they're going into the rest of the 1800s and thinking about their strategy that, gee, British India won them the last war. Where can we get our equivalent of British India? Is it in Eastern <laughs> Europe? Is it in Africa? Is it where? Where is it that we can find it? And of course, famously, um, you know, the new state of Germany emerging after 1871 acquires all of these in the end quite profoundly useless colonies um, in pursuit of some kind of access to those markets. And part of this does become one of these things that it begins with a fairly obvious security argument, which then becomes a prestige argument. We must have a place in the sun, which no longer really tethered to security. Like, was German East Africa really important for the security of the German empire? Probably not. Um, but it could be justified on those grounds because look at what happened the last time there was a big rumble and don't we want those. But then what I find really interesting is that Victoria also pushes the other way, 
which is that having a big empire and lots of market access is obviously bad for a lot of the humans that you encounter, but it's really very good for your core population. And that expresses an uncomfortable reality about empire that is worth saying, that empires exist. You want to talk about forms of states that aren't nation states. An empire is a form of state that isn't a nation state. In an empire, there is a core population. It exploits a periphery for resources. Empires, therefore, exist for that core to exploit that periphery. That's what an empire is. And so in Victoria too, you establish your empire to produce raw materials in your colonies that can flow into your factories in your country's core so that people in the core of your country can have the goods they need to make them happy. And because Victoria too simulates goods consumption on a pop-by-pop -pop basis, you can actually see that process whereby my hellish uh you know exotic wood timber operations in in the east indies fuel my luxury furniture industry which in turn makes my clerks happy because they can have nice chairs i think that that kind of um dovetails very nicely into what was going to be my next question which is when we're talking about eu4 which is very much a, a game about states um if somebody has played two, three, four thousand hours of EU4, and they feel like I am just an expert on the early modern period at this point. What are the biggest blind spots? What are the biggest things you're missing when you have only experienced this period through this lens that very much puts the state front and center? Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be all sorts of of non-state interactions, and especially a lot of I think the biggest blind spot for EU four is what does all of this state action mean for actual people? You go to war and you see little red numbers float above your armies, but manpower depletes and replenishes and depletes and replenishes, and it doesn't mean anything. You can't actually depopulate your country in EU four. Um, you suppress. Um, you know, uh, unrest in your provinces, you enact new policies, and EU4 never tells you what this means for people. Perhaps the most striking example of this is you set up some trade ports in West Africa, and the trade good happens to be slaves, and that just quietly generates money for your country, and the game never really confronts you with any of the realities of what that means of ships full of human beings in miserable conditions being carted off into slavery in the Americas in equally brutal conditions, right? EU4, because it's a game about states, does not foreground the human cost of state action. So I think there's a there's an interesting aspect of EU4 specifically where the thing that separates it from the previous games in the series is that it attempts to abstract uh, things that the previous games tried to make very literal. This is most apparent in the event system, which mm -hmm. in, in original Europa Universalis is, is just like, okay, it's, you know, the early 16th century in Russia, we're doing... Boris Gudunov, or maybe the early 17th, I forget. And so you're having a bunch of events that will probably lead you to a civil war. Whereas in EU4, you get a Boris Gudunov style situation when um, 
the abstract conditions of the game when the unrest is high, when the ruler is weak, whatever, when you can't keep spending diplomatic points, when you've expanded too too quickly for your grasp, then you will have a situation that is like that, but it's not hard-coded into the game. Um, there's also another aspect of this where EU4 attempts to abstract uh, things like population. Population is a common common component of strategy games, and it's often not a relevant one. Like you go to civilization and the the numbers on the cities of the number of people in them, you know, you have like a size one city at the start that becomes a size 20 city when it's getting into the end game. Uh, those have like actual population numbers attached to them that are completely meaningless. Like there, there's, it'll say that you have, you know, uh, 60 million people in your empire. And that's that's completely irrelevant compared to, I have three cities that are uh, size 15 each. And EU4 does this a lot with population by turning it into development. Um, and it does it with the, the monarch point system that uh, takes ideas that would be very specifically used for events, ideas as in... Uh, concepts within the game not ideas as in the idea mechanic uh it takes those things that would have been events prior and now it's like do i want to spend 50 diplomatic points or whatever to lower inflation or do i want to use it to influence whatever thing here um so by trying to solve a des design issue with previous eu games that was they could be a little too historically on rails eu4 attempts to make like a historical ish simulation like we're not directly playing as you know queen isabella or uh whoever you are making the same decisions that they might have made in similar situations and it's kind of giving you little nudges so that you will try to make those decisions in the way that they they happened in the game, which is a really, really good form of game design. It makes EU4 stand out compared to the rest of the series in being a more fascinating actual game versus a historical simulation that's on rails. However, if you're abstracting population away into development points, then the history that you're teaching is one that increasingly leaves people outside of it. And... This is kind of an unintended side effect of the design decisions that Paradox made, where they made a better game that also makes history kind of creepy because those slaves are no longer anything except for just a resource. Yeah, I think that I think that's very true. This is one of my criticisms is perhaps a strong word, but notes about about EU4. I find it very striking that in EU4, warfare does not generally result in a loss of development points, and battle casualties don't negatively impact your home economy or your people. Yeah. That your your manpower always comes back. Um, Victoria is obviously the the counterpoint where your manpower doesn't come back. And I suspect for many players making the jump from EU and CK to the upcoming Victoria may be shocked to find out that you can ruin your country with an early war in a Victoria game, if even if you win because you took too many casualties and you've now crippled your pops because you know you have a lost generation and you're going to feel that demographically. 
But it is an element where uh, the decision to abstract population away um, leaves a lot of your decisions lacking the weight that you think that they should feel that you know, if you fight a war and you lose hundreds of thousands of people in that war, that's going to be demographically significant. That's going to leave lasting scars in your country. And EU4, in abstracting that, in making things easy for the player, just doesn't have that system, uh, at least not to that level of impact. Yeah, it creates frustration for the player because they have to sit and wait in order to do the next war, which is, you know, the big fun thing to do. Um but it does not like it doesn't have those lasting effects. It's it's a system that like affects how you think about the game. And maybe you face the consequences if somebody else decides to invade you after this, which the AI is shockingly good at doing. Um, but yeah, it's it's weird in that it doesn't seem to like actually cost you development when you, you know, get massacred by the Ottomans. Yeah, you think it should. Also I feel like that should be Paradox's tagline. Paradox, an AI that is sometimes surprisingly competent. <laughs> Paradox, we figured out how interfaces work. No, they haven't. <laughs> they're, they're working on it. It's getting better. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... Um... I uh, I am overflowing with questions, but I'm trying to focus on on the state and and uh, and the, the the ostensible topic of the show. But I I really um, take a side note here um, to uh, encourage everybody to um, read Brett's um, uh, blog, and there are so many uh, different angles and um, and analyses that are that are great there, and uh, provide all sorts of of really interesting directions um, to to think about these kinds of games and and the ideas in them. Um, uh, one thing that we haven't been talking about uh, too much yet um, that you do cover in your series on EU four uh, a bit is. Um, uh, the fact, obviously, it's you know Europe is in the name, like like we always say. So of course Europe is is front and center, and and so also I think, um, if I understand correctly, anyway, sort of the the modern European concepts of um, of state and and um, something that I always kind of beg on um, is is the sort of that the the concept of, of sovereignty over territory that goes with that. And, um, you mentioned, um, a bit about, um, you know, non-European, um, sort of actors, political actors that, that get transformed into States because that's what the game is about. So you have to play a state. And, uh, we talked about that a bit earlier, but, um, I'm wondering if, if, uh, you could talk a little bit about sort of what, what seems to be, baked in assumptions that are just like the European concept of how states are and, and the concept of ownership over territory. It's just, it's red on the map. It's mine. It's not yours. Go away. Um, versus, um, maybe some of the, the concepts or, or ways of, of interacting with th those ideas of, of sort of ownership and administration that are outside of Europe, but still, you know, uh, state state or state-like organizations that we we considered at the time and, and consider in history sort of equivalent in, in stature to Europe like like for example Chinese or or some of the um 
Middle Eastern countries or nations. I'm not sure if that's way outside of your realm of, of expertise or opinion, but um, just curious. No, that's fair. I think it's I think it's worth noting it at the outset um, that it's funny because you do get this association of of Europe with the idea of the state. Um, the state as an idea, as an institution, is not native to Europe. Um, the humans appear to have come up with states um, that function remarkably similarly to each other uh, at a number of different times um, in history in a number of different places. Um, the fancy term for this is we often call them, quote unquote, pristine states. That is a state that forms in the absence of uh, neighboring any other state. Um, so we have pristine states in southern Mesopotamia, pristine states in in Egypt, um, but central China. Um, we also see pristine state formation. Um, the Indus River Valley, uh, pristine state. Uh, Mexico, uh, pristine state formation. Um, and so these are uh, this is not an exclusive. Uh, um, Peru, um, not an exclusive list. I'm I'm leaving some out. I'm doing this from memory. Um, but so the state is not a uniquely European idea. Um, it's certainly not the only way to organize people en masse, um, but it's a, it's a way of organizing people that pops up in a lot of places. And so, for instance, the Chinese state, in terms of the way it runs in this period, if you're looking at, say, the Ming dynasty, it is it is much bigger than any contemporary European state. But it works in many of the same ways, conscription-based military, tax system, um, you know, a, a centralized um, control on the use of force. Um, the Ming Dynasty is, is you know, notable because it maintains um, a, a cloud of tributaries both in-game and in the real world. Um, these are subordinate states, but that's a feature of the European state system too, um, that you would have these um, tributary states that are outside of your area of immediate control, but are vassal or client states. The Romans had dozens of these scattered along their borders. Um, that's not a particularly new idea. There is in, in history right now a real, um, particularly in ancient history, a real um, push for more scholarship on what is essentially comparative empire and a comparison, for instance, of the Roman Empire with the Han Dynasty in China, their contemporaries. They seem to have been aware of each other's existence. Um, really shows in a lot of cases how surprisingly similar they were uh, in terms of the organization of state functions and militaries and so on. There are key differences but there are also commonalities. Now, at the same time, it's worth noting, not all humans lived in states. And you do have some really big non-state organizations, um, whether these are tribal confederations stretched across Eurasia, right? The Mongols do not have a state. Um, of course, we've talked about um, Native North Americans, generally with some exceptions, not organized in states, even though they're often organized into very sophisticated polities. Um, I think it's important to note that state and sophistication are not the same. Um, that said, certainly you do get different ideas about territory when it comes to different forms of societies. One of the really common conflicts that pops up historically that 
frankly, EU4 could do a better job simulating is between nomadic pastoral peoples, that is people whose primary form of subsistence is raising animals typically in semi-arid grasslands, um, and agrarian societies. The state is a creature of agrarian societies. It cannot go where agriculture doesn't. The forms of organization, taxes, conscription, all of that stuff relies on a population of farmers that are um, that are that are stuck in place because you can you can't move a farm. Um, and so the state is very much an agrarian institution. And states that border pastoral peoples often find their relationship with them is really hard, in part because they often have different notions of ownership. <laughs> um, ownership works differently when the things that you're owning are animals and in situations where, Land may not be held by individuals, but may be held communally. For instance, land may be held by the tribe or land may be held by the chief and other people have use of it. And then the simultaneous problem when you talk about map painting, there is a tendency when a group of farmers look at an open field of grass and there's no one there and they say this is empty. Uh, but it may not be empty. It may simply be the winter pasture for some nomadic pastoralists who are currently in their summer pasture. And if you try and set up a farm in that pasture, when those guys come back, they're going to be very upset because you've disrupted their subsistence system and endangered their survival. And they're going to usually express their upsetness by shooting arrows at you. Have any of you played the more recent EU4 updates where they have the sort of soft control for some of the tribal societies? Um, where you'll have tribal land that's like not colored in, but it's technically within your borders. I don't know if I, I might be the only one who's played you for recently enough for them to have introduced that. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't remember saying <laughs> it's that. an interesting there. It's interesting to see the ways Paradox has kind of tried to kind of come at some of these issues. From what I understand, in Victoria three, you're going to have these disorganized uh, peoples where you can you can like colonize on the top of them, but they are still there as like a geopolitical entity. It's not going to be like uh, just open land. So it'll be interesting to see how that works. But sort of my wrap up question here was going to be. Um, it's clear that Paradox does have a theory of history. It's it's clear that it works for the type of game that they're making. Uh, in a lot of ways, it works better than a lot of other similar games um, in how seriously they take certain certain aspects of it. Um, we talked a little bit about, you know, Victoria 2 and, and Marxism being another different theory of history that you could model it on. But if we're looking at a game that is primarily concerning with state, itself with states and primarily looking at the early modern era, um, what do you like? What, what do you think could ha could happen to fill in some of these gaps? I guess sort of I'm asking us to play armchair game designer a little bit, which I know Rowan hates, but. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, in a situation like this, it's it's yeah. Fine. What what, um, what do you feel like they could wanna... do to fill in some of these these gaps where where somebody who has played thousands of hours of of EU four might be missing these huge parts of history? I I want to talk a little bit about the game history sure. here because this is a thing that I think game developers prior to ten years ago or so were not doing. Um, and they have been trying to reincorporate it in these long-running strategy series like Total War, like Civilization, like uh, EU4, where 
when these games were started, they were done with like a theory of history or a theory of how how things work that basically organized the world into European style civilizations and barbarians. And they would not necessarily have said it, although civilization kind of does, but they would do like, here's a random independent city. It doesn't do anything except exist for you to conquer when you're ready. Um, and here are barbarians. They're just dudes who appear on the map and they'll attack anything that moves. It's, and it's shifted. Uh, Civilization five was perhaps the biggest single step. Uh, but like it, it pairs along with, uh, something we've done a show about and talked about a bunch of having different factions and strategy games play differently because, you know, you load up a game from before 2005, those factions are basically just different colors and different names. They're in, maybe they have like a unique unit, but there's no huge difference between the Chinese and the Incans or whatever. And this has, this attempt to create a form of history that shows that societies were distinct, but also like reasonably equivalently complex and not just divided into civilized and barbarian is being attached to games that were designed when it was normal in video games to have the world be divided into civilized and barbarian. So EU4 is trying to like react to how badly previous games in this series treated uh, non-European civilizations. Um, civilization has done a fairly admirable, although kind of strange job of integrating non-major conquest civs into being able to be played in the game and not being incredibly boring. Um, Total War has shifted from just having a bunch of blank space saying these are cities that you can go conquer, whatever, to having those be minor factions. And then perhaps with expansions, those become playable factions. Uh, so the map in Total War used to be like, you know, 50 percent gray, the the typical the typical color given to neutrals. Um, and now it's wildly diverse and every single one of those has their own little person in them that you have to kind of deal with at their own level total warhammer ends up with you know 150 factions that's going to probably be over 200 when total warhammer 3 comes out and each of those factions is their own distinct voice their own distinct di diplomatic thing you can't necessarily play as them but they are Things that exist within the game systems that the player does, not things that are external and things that the player can only destroy. Um, so there's this impulse to adapt these existing games that I think is directly relevant here, as opposed to creating an entirely new system, uh, which like humankind would have had the opportunity to do and made some attempts at it and, you know, failed and succeeded in certain ways. Uh, so yeah, that's that's sort of the history that I want to get into is that we're we're basically taking a Eurocentric set of models that is having non-Eurocentric uh, dreams of doing better applied to them. I think that's I think it's a fair point, and it actually gets to what I was going to answer to that original question, which is the sort of the first thing that came to mind: what can they do differently? And I was going to say, no more empty map squares. Um, right. I think I think this is the big thing that 
a lot of these games still indulge, and of course, Civilization does um, as well. They indulge in the idea of sort of greenfield settlement, where there just nobody lives here before you show up, and you just you just move in. And even even if you're looking at Civilization, even that very first turn of civilization you know we actually have now a somewhat decent idea of what it looked like when the innovation of farming first began to spread out it was farming is developed like states at various different points of the world independently but it first began to spread out and those early farmers are not spreading out into empty space there were already humans there there were other groups of hunter-gatherers, and in fact, the studies have been done most um, completely in Europe that show that farming didn't come to Europe as an idea that people picked up on. It came as a tide of farmers that, for the most part, displaced the pre-existing population, a wave of farmers coming out of the Near East using the greater population density farming offered to violently dispossess the people that were already living there um, of their land, with a few exceptions where um, where the sort of pre-farming population held on. That's nowhere in a civilization game. Um, you're not throwing people out of that hill tile when you slap your city down on it. But historically, that's exactly what they were doing. And it speaks to the fact that that is what people have always been doing. That's what colonization has looked like in every era. Those lands were never empty. And a lot of games continue to indulge in this idea of greenfield colonization. And I'm reasonably sympathetic if you want to place that in space or the future or what have you. But when you're placing it in notionally historical or historical fantasy settings, it gets more than a little awkward that that tile is quote unquote empty. Yeah, I think... One of the big things that I would like to see, and we've talked about this on the uh, Imperator show, is the idea of soft power and kind of an extension of influence over spaces where people already exist. And that's, you know, I, I think I've talked about, like, what would a game about the Peloponnesian War look like? Because Athens and Sparta are distinct entities, but they're fighting over influence with a bunch of city-states around them and that influence manifests in a whole bunch of different ways. It's not just that like the map gets colored in a certain position and now that city is entirely under the control of Athenian government in Athens. It's that that, you know, that city like slightly realigns itself to be more, more inclined to go along with what, what influence Athens can provide over it. And Trying to figure out a way to do that and make that fun is, I think, like the best dream of what what historical strategy games can work on next for me, uh, especially like a grand strategy game, uh, just because I I'm really tired of having these like incredibly distinct borders that give you total control over everything in it and zero control over everything out of it. Uh, that's that's just not how history worked, and I think that that's also a method of gameplay that we've 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 covered that fairly well. We've done a good job with it. We should we should try to be a little more creative with how how power is uh, 
depicted and distributed in in strategy games. What about you, Mike? If you could throw something new into the mix. Um, uh, I want to deflect that question. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> because I don't have a good answer. It's fine. But um, I was actually wondering of if I could uh, uh, ask uh, Brett about this. Um, because I was thinking earlier... Um, that um you you divided you you sort of summarized um the eu and ck and victoria lines of paradox games as focusing on states relationships and and people and i'm just wondering if there's there's something like as a large sort of concept to centralize a sort of theory of history around and then see if you can build a game around it is there something else that's that big that you could really that maybe already exists as a as a common theory but has never really been explored in the game space or or just something you think could be hmm, i mean that's obviously a, a really big question i mean my my instinct um and my students will quickly tell you this is always my instinct is to say farming <laughs> um i think of course, that gets you more into 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 builder games. I'm often a little bit disappointed by city builder games of various kinds because they often feature farming as a, a mechanic. You know, you're um, um, banished. I, I've been playing Timberborn uh, lately, um, the Beaver City Builder, um, and they often feature farming. But I often find myself sometimes a little disappointed because. One, all the farming is centrally managed by you, the player, which is not how farming works. Um, but two, the yields for the farming are so high that you never get a sense of the kind of expansiveness of space, but also the narrow margins of subsistence for farming before the modern era. That it, you know, before the British agricultural revolution in the 1700s, like by and large, you needed eight or nine farmers to support every non-farmer. And it would be really interesting to see a game attempt to actually simulate that at close to those levels of productivity, a situation where your society consists almost entirely of villages, where they exist very close to the subsistence line, so they're teetering on the edge of starvation in any given year, as most humans have lived for most of human history. Um, and, and to make the player really think about what are the strategies I need to engage in where I'm really not focused on optimizing my farming grid for maximum production. I am focused on maximum safety and survival in a situation where harvests and yields are wildly unpredictable. One year we have a bumper crop, the next year it fails in ways I can't control and can't predict. And the sort of strategies that that leads to um, in structuring a society around that kind of unpredictability, because all of these games that we've been discussing, they're all sort of built on top of assumptions about agrarian societies where the actual day-to-day -day farmers see to themselves. It would be really interesting to see a game that approaches that question and approaches it in a way that aims to be enough of a simulation. Like I said, a lot of games have farming in them, but they push the farming yield so high that the factors that historically worked on small farmers in the distant past aren't really, those mechanics aren't really working on you when your yields are 10 or 20 times what they were historically. 
Yeah, I think what I'd really like to see, and I've actually done some experiments with this modding uh, Imperator Rome. I don't want to promise it'll ever be released because I, I honestly just don't have the time probably uh, to make like <laughs> a, ver a playable version that's fun. But I would love to see some grand strategy style games that are about units much smaller than states, even if that means we have to zoom in the map more. Um, one thing I was trying to do is to turn like each territory in Gaul on the Imperator map into basically an, like an independent commune where it would be much more about the relationships between these in-person communities where you might have a kingdom or, or something like a state or an empire eventually, but it would be made up of these cells that are sort of these communities that, that still kind of act on their own outside of just having like an, an autonomy score that tells how many taxes they give you or a percentage chance to spawn rebels. Um, oh my God. Play King of Dragon Like, I would Pass. love to see a game where you don't play as the Roman Republic or the Roman Empire. You play as the city of Rome, expanding your influence out in these, like, rings of, you know, conquered communities and, and tributaries and things like that. So, um, that's kind of what, that that's kind of the direction I would like to see them go in terms of, like, something Paradox has not tried to tackle yet. And again, I don't mind if this is on a map where the map is a kingdom. It's not the entire world, um, because I think just the AI decision making burden <laughs> of having 3000 independent communes on the map would probably melt even the most uh, expensive uh, modern CPUs, assuming you can even get one, which right now you really can't. Um, <laughs> so, uh yeah, anyway, um, I think that that is a good place to kind of wrap up our discussion of states. But, Brett, we would love to have you back on again to talk, talk about city builders. Um, the concept of empire is another one I had written down. The human costs of war. Um, we have we have lots of uh, lots of ideas that <laughs> we'd love to uh, love to chat with you about in the future if you're up for it. Well, this is this was fun. I'd love to come back. So we should we should sort of generate our list and, and then we'll get to them. We'll get to them one of these days. Yeah. Uh, do you want to, we've already kind of plugged it, but do you want to plug your stuff before we get out of here? Right. Yeah. Um, if you, if for some inexplicable reason, after all of this, you want to, um, <laughs> you want to read more of my ramblings. Um, I write again at a collection of unmitigated pedantry. That's a C O U P dot blog. Um, and you can read, um, all about my history musings, uh, mostly pre-modern, but not entirely pre-modern. Um, I discuss games, but I also discuss history outside of games and also in in broader popular culture. So, um, you know, give it a look, see if it's if it's what you like. And where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, I am at if, Brett if they're Devereaux. Into that sort of thing. Yeah, if you are on if if you are on Twitter first, I'm sorry, and second, <laughs> I am uh, at Brett Devereaux, just the one T. Um, so it's just I'm one of those rare people that I got my actual name as a Twitter handle. Um, as far as I can tell, there is only one of me in the world, which is probably good for everyone involved. <laughs> but yeah, at Brett Devereaux uh, on Twitter. And as always, you can follow us. Uh, we're at 3MA on Twitter. Uh, we are also over on the Idle Forums at idlethumbs.net slash 3MA, if you remember what forums are and uh, still participate in the 
storied cultural tradition that is uh, threads and um, uh, replies and all these kinds of, of uh, things from our from our uh, uh, it quickly be becoming bygone era uh, with things like Discord, but we also do have a Discord because we are also looking towards the future, which you can get access to by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash 3MA. Uh, the show is entirely supported by fans like you, um, and we always appreciate your uh, your support there. You can also get access to our monthly uh, movie pods. Uh, where Rob and Troy sit down and talk movies. So it's not all just all strategy games all the time. Um, so until next week, when we'll be back with another great episode of 3MA. Um, for, uh, for Brett and for Rowan and for Mike, this is Len saying goodnight.